Welcome to the Menzies Research Centre podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Daniel Hannan, the journalist, writer and conservative member of the European Parliament who rose to fame for this speech in March 2009, describing then Prime Minister Gordon Brown as, well, let's have a listen. The truth, Prime Minister, is that you have run out of our money. The country as a whole is now in negative equity. Every British child is born owing around £20,000. Servicing the interest on that debt is going to cost more than educating the child. Now, once again today, you try to spread the blame around. You spoke about an international recession, international crisis. Well, it is true that we are all sailing together into the squalls. But not every vessel in the convoy is in the same dilapidated condition. Other ships used the good years to caulk their hulls and clear their rigging, in other words, to pay off debt. But you used the good years to raise borrowing yet further. As a consequence, under your captaincy, our hull is pressed deep into the waterline under the accumulated weight of your debt. We are now running a deficit that touches 10% of GDP, an almost unbelievable figure. More than Pakistan, more than Hungary, countries where the IMF has already been called in. Now, it's not that you're not apologising. Like everyone else, I've long accepted that you're pathologically incapable of accepting responsibility for these things. It's that you're carrying on, willfully worsening our situation, wantonly spending what little we have left. Last year, in the last 12 months, 100,000 private sector jobs have been lost, and yet you created 30,000 public sector jobs. Prime Minister, you cannot carry on forever squeezing the productive bit of the economy in order to fund an unprecedented engorgement of the unproductive bit. You cannot spend your way out of recession or borrow your way out of debt. And when you repeat in that wooden and perfunctory way that our situation is better than others, that we're well placed to weather the storm, I have to tell you, you sound like a Brezhnev-era apparatchik giving the party line. You know, and we know, and you know that we know that it's nonsense. Everyone knows that Britain is worse off than any other country as we go into these hard times. The IMF has said so. The European Commission has said so. The markets have said so, which is why our currency has devalued by 30%, and soon the voters too will get their chance to say so. They can see what the markets have already seen, that you are the devalued Prime Minister of a devalued government. And now, Menzies Research Centre Executive Director Nick Cater talking to Daniel Hannan via Skype in London. First of all, Dan, uh, it does seem to me that there is uh, a sort of disruptive element in centre-right politics and probably all politics when you look at the UK, uh, United States and Australia at the moment. Would you say that's true? Yeah, definitely. Politics has gone in directions that we wouldn't have imagined 15 years ago. And what's interesting is to put your finger on, on what's changed. And I think two things have changed. One is the financial crisis and the reaction to it. I think a lot of uh, a lot of governments with the bailouts gave the impression that they were taxing ordinary people, low and medium income people, to rescue wealthy bankers. And that, I think, vindicated what had until then seemed a slightly absurd far left view that, you know, the capitalist system is all just 
rigged in favor of the rich. And in a way, Trump and Sanders and Le Pen and Wilders and Syriza and Podemos, they're all kind of delayed reactions. The other thing that I think has changed, and this one isn't going to go away, is the multiplicity of different outlets caused by the Internet uh, has suddenly made an awful lot of points of view seem perfectly mainstream because it's it's disintermediated politics and it's reduced the power of the dozen or so uh, political correspondents who used to decide what was acceptable and what got covered and, and what didn't. Yeah, I, I resist sometimes that argument of technological determinism because, uh, well, for, for, for many reasons, but one is that it seems to let politicians off the hook. If they're finding it harder to persuade the electorate of, of a policy or, or, or indeed that they can be trusted, it's an easy one, isn't it, to say, well, it's, it's the media, it's social media. But you think it's something in it, do you? Well, I think it's not exactly that. It's that uh, if you look at, even now, at parliaments around the world in almost any democracy, you will find a lot of points of view that are fairly widespread, but that have almost no representation in the parliament, where there are obvious mismatches between public opinion and, and politicians. So... Uh, a classic example on the right would be the view that there should be close to zero immigration. I mean, that's not my view, but it is clearly an underrepresented view in most Western parliaments. Uh, there is also a very widespread but underrepresented view on the left that you should have punitive confiscatory taxation for wealthy people. Uh, again, not my view, but if I'm honest, it is a point of view that is underrepresented in most parliaments. And I think what, one of the, the things that changed when uh, people no longer had to get their news from a number of, if you like, filtered approved sources, is that they discovered that actually these turned out to be much more widespread positions than had previously appeared to be the case. And it wasn't long before, on both sides, there were Donald Trump's and Jeremy Corbyn's who were prepared to benefit from that sense and, and to offer uh, themselves to election articulating those points of view. So if you're, if you're a, a, a liberal, uh, as we are, and, and, and you are philosophically, if not, uh, if not uh, by party affiliation, this should be a wonderful thing, shouldn't it? A great breakthrough for, for participatory democracy. Isn't it? Well, it, it definitely has upsides. And, you know, the removal of these, uh, of these filters generally is good news for people who are right of centre, whether whether of conservative or libertarian points of view. I mean, when everybody got the news from their, from the BBC, you know, there were a number of soft left assumptions, as, as you'll remember, that just infused it. It was very rarely partisan, but it just took for granted that, you know, Israel was bad, immigration was good, austerity was, was bad, Europe was good. And so the removal of those filters is, is good. In fact, I remember um, uh, when I... The first time I did something that got a lot of coverage online, which was a, a speech I made attacking Gordon Brown in the European Parliament uh, about eight years ago, there was a very tetchy uh, article in the New Statesman by the former editor of the New Statesman, uh, who said, the fact that this speech has got so many millions of views just goes to show what we knew all along, that the Internet lacks all quality control. And, and that was the authentic voice of the angry left losing their monopoly. Oh, my God, they've taken the filters off. All sorts of things can be said now. So in general, you know, I think there are great opportunities here. But I think we should be honest and say that, you know, it, it is not only people like you and me who are seizing the opportunities. I think a lot of people on the 
aggressive left have also seized the the opportunities and i think we've seen that in a number of european countries yeah and and also i think you see a reaction don't you from the establishment if you like on the one hand it seems to me they're bewildered by these outcomes but uh, on the other hand uh, they get quite angry they, they don't like the idea that uh, that monopoly is being broken uh, right and who would right everyone is a monopolist if they can get away with it i mean i i think the most powerful tool that they used to have uh, and when i say the establishment here i mean it in its, its widest sense the the journalists the politicians the civil servants they had the great ability to make things go away by ignoring them if a story didn't fit and the, the newspapers and tv didn't cover it that was it there was no alternative way for people to to come together and organize and if I had to put my finger on the moment that that changed, or certainly the moment that I noticed it changing, it was, do you remember the leaked climate gate emails from the University of East Anglia, the hide the decline emails? Yes, yes. Mm. You know, the people that were supposed to be setting the UN definition, effectively massaging the figures. Now, this came out through blogs in the early 2000s, and there was it was particularly... My then Telegraph colleague, uh, blogging colleague, James Dellingpole, and he had the technique day after day of naming and shaming all of the environment correspondents in all the main newspapers. This is what the Times environment correspondent thinks is a bigger story today. This is what the guy in the Independent thinks is a bigger story. And in the end, of course, they had to, they were shamed into covering the story. And I remember thinking then, this has changed everything. You can no longer repress a story simply by looking the other way. And that's got to be a good thing if you take the view that pluralism is a good thing. Because, you know, I mean, the, 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 the easy, the facile and slightly fatuous thing that everyone says is, I want impartial news. Well, you know, guys, I hate to break it to you, but there is no such thing as impartial news. Whatever one person thinks is impartial, the next person thinks is biased. You can certainly want accurate news, but there is no one will ever agree on what is impartial news. So the best you can hope for is to have a cacophony of competing news outlets, a, 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 a great din of clashing different interpretations. And out of that din, you can discern something close to the truth because you'll have heard all of the different cases being argued somewhere. So to come back to uh, our domestic politics in Australia, as, as I think you probably know, we've been through a somewhat uh, tumultuous week. Uh, one reaction is to blame the calibre of politicians themselves. Oh, we don't just don't get, you know, people of conviction or, or people of, 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 of skill into Parliament anymore. But if what you're saying is true, then politicians are facing a new environment and and therefore challenges and hurdles they've never faced before. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this will be the single most unpopular thing that I say in this whole interview. But I think if you if you take the long view, if you if you read, you know, histories of politicians in Australia or Britain or any other country, you know, say uh, 150 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, and you look at the calibre of the speeches, the amount of time they put in, the, uh, the levels of personal probity, it is impossible to sustain the view that the calibre is collapsing. I mean, it, 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 it visibly isn't. We're, 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 we're all rosily nostalgic about this. What I think is happening is that expectations are rising. 
like with everything else, you know, like like our expectations of, uh, you know, where to go on holiday or what kind of, you know, what, what a, a phone should be capable of. Uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, and politicians are always going to be unpopular because they're always going to be lagging behind expectations. Uh, but the idea that, you know, that we were, uh, that we'd be better off being run by a uh, amateur, part-time, aristocratic clique, it just doesn't really bear scrutiny.